apples of gold and settings of silver. So probably next week we'll go back to um, John, the book of John. But uh, how many knows there's some crazy things going on in the world? Yeah. Anybody know that? Yeah. Crazy. So uh, we were over there, over in Europe, and like a lot of the Christians were like tripping. And, you know, I mean, I know a lot, so I wasn't like really like, it was just like, oh, and then I realized, wow, people don't, people don't really understand, um, you know, what's, what's happening. So through prayer, and uh, I just want to put something together for you. And I'm going to title it, Is This the End? Is this the end? It's just the beginning. So I'm going to walk you through a passage of scripture. So something like this, this subject. So I spent years of my life studying this, not to boast or anything, but I am without a doubt qualified to speak on this subject. This is a seminar, to say the least, and I'm going to compile it into about a 55-minute little version. Um, uh, there's a lot of questions. The, the end times, it's what's called eschatology. You know, it's what it means, study of last things, eska, last things, ology, study of last things. And so eschatology is a major theme. It's a meta theme in the Bible. It's a very important theme, uh, particularly in the New Testament. And uh, there's a lot of events that are um, leading up to that. So I'm going to walk you through. Uh, if you want to know where I'm going to go from, I'm going to go through Matthew chapter 24. So we're just going to take a portion of that and we're going to break that down for you. In order to understand the end, we have to understand the beginning. The end is defined by the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created a family. And God, mankind, God gave man a vision. He, he brought man into his family. He created man as part of his family. It's what's called, everybody say it with me, the Edenic vision. This is something that's often missed. So let me tell you, I'm a teacher more than a preacher. I was in, I was in uh, Italy, and I was with these pastors, and uh, everybody's preaching, and I'm like, look, man. I can preach to you. I can throw it at you. I can get you all excited and get you all fired up. And I said, but you, it, that preaching doesn't change you. Te preaching motivates you. Teaching changes you. Te say with me. Teaching changes me. Preaching will motivate me, but it may not necessarily change me. So the best way is to teach and preach at the same time. So this is a little bit more of a teaching, but I want you to learn and I want you to grow. So in the beginning, God created something and God had an Edenic vision. Everything that God wanted to do, he began in the Garden of Eden. To understand what God is actually doing and what he will eventually do, we have to understand the Edenic vision. That is everything, everything, everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God planted a garden in the east of Eden and God created man and woman. He put them in the garden that he had planted, and he essentially told them, on earth as it is in heaven, go and create culture in the earth. As, as above, so beneath, as you see me, so you do. It was a relational family aspect. Father, son, father, daughter, everybody multiplying, ruling, and subduing the earth. This Edenic vision is so powerful that when, in Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, it is the restoration of the Edenic vision. I believe all doctrines should be understood through the Edenic vision. This is just my personal belief. And you say, well, what did Jesus do when he rose from the dead? When Mary went to the tomb, she mistook Jesus for a what? Anyone? That starts with a G, ends with an R. A gardener. Why a gardener? Because Jesus had risen, and what he's prophetically presenting is the restoration of the Edenic vision. Edenic vision, I'm not here to talk to you about the Edenic vision, but it's extremely powerful. 
and it relates to everything that God is doing in the earth. That's why the Jews couldn't understand what he was doing. It was because they had lost the concept of the Edenic vision. You see, they got it. They got the Edenic <laughs> vision back then. So we have, we have four pillars in the scripture. You understand your Bible? I'm going somewhere with this. So we say when we have creation, creation. we have the fall, fall, we have the redemption, redemption, and we have the restoration of all things. In your Bible, it's, uh, the themes of the, whenever you read a story, it's going to relate to one of those things. It's going to relate to something back to the creation. It's going to relate to something sinful, which relates to the fall, or it's going to be a promise of redemption or a promise of renewal. And so what happens is, is Adam and Eve fall. So there you have the Edenic vision, didn't last long. Adam fall, Adam and Eve fall. And now we have the promise of redemption. We have the promise of a redeemer. We have the promise of Jesus coming for us as us. Between the fall of man and the redemption of man, there is a gap of time. You understand? So Jesus didn't come immediately. Even though the promise was made immediately, there was a gap of time between the fall and the redemption. Now we know Christ has come, right? So now we, we, have, uh, we have creation, we have the fall, and between the fall and the redemption, there was a gap of time, and that gap of time, uh, Jesus has come, and now there is a gap of time between the redemption and the renewal of all things. This is the meta theme of scripture. This is what we're all waiting for Jesus to come because when he comes, he's going to make all things new. Don't you want it new? Right? We want it shiny brand new. We all get a new body. Hallelujah. I wonder if he's going to give us a catalog. You know what I mean? Which one? Which one? I, want the, I want the Ferrari model, Lord. You got one of those? You know, we, we, he makes all things new. That's the renewal of all things. I love to say the word, and you can say it with me. Say it with me. Palin. Genesia means the renewal of all things. When Jesus comes, he's going to renew everything. All things will be gone. You will be renewed. Everything will be brought new. Peace in the earth. Prosperity in the earth. No more war. No more tears. No more death. We don't even know what that... We can't even comprehend that because it's all we've ever known. All we've ever known is pain and tears and hurt and sorrow and loss and struggle and sweat. That's all we've ever known. So when Jesus said, I'm going to do away with all that, we're kind of like, really? You know, we, really? Are you, how, how's that going to happen? Say, it's too good to be true. And now say, nope, it's so good it is true. He's going to restore everything. He's going to make things new. This is what we're waiting for. We're in the gap between the redemption and the restoration of all things. Galatians, this gap between the fall of man and the coming of the Messiah, is, there's that gap was spoken of in Galatians chapter 4. It says, when the fullness of the time had come, or what it really says is when the dispensation had concluded, when the dispensation had concluded, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. So here we have creation, the fall of man. There's a gap of time in between the fall of man and the coming of Christ, what's called the fullness of time or the dispensation of time. Dispensation is a fancy word. I'll teach you because I like to teach. Dispen, especially Jesus. I could talk about Jesus all night. Dispensation of time. You have to drag me off the stage. Like, man, this guy likes to talk. Get this guy out of here. When I was in Italy, it was like a long time ago. How much time do I got? How much time do I got? How much time do I got? Anyway, so the dispensation, what dispensation is, is it's a system of rulership in the earth. It's how God chooses to operate his government in the earth. 
Before, so under the creation, God's government was between Adam and Eve. It was a family structure. When Adam and Eve fell, God's government now had to be contained within the law. That's why we are, mankind, God's government, operated through a system of law. Broken people, broken things, under a broken system of law. That was the dispensation of the law. Now the dispensation, the time of the law, that's what Galatians is saying, is done. Fullness of the time God sent to redeem those who are under the law, the redemption, the, re, the, the dispensation is done. Now the government of heaven rests with the, earth, with, with the church. The dispensation that we are under in the earth right now, the government of heaven operates in and through the church, specifically through God's people and through God's corporate anointing within the church. Heaven moves through the church. Heaven will move through your individual lives. Heaven isn't moving out there. Heaven's power, heaven's authority has been given to us. That is a truth. Our problem is, is why we don't see it is we don't understand it. We don't understand that this is true. We don't understand that this is actually given to us. Heaven moves. Heaven moves. I showed you a girl that got healed in Argentina. She was 85% blind. Heaven moves. We had a dude that was there with a leg all cocked out. In, uh, where were we? In F Florence. Right? Guy's all cocked out. Pastor brought him to me. And the guy's leg's all cocked out. He can't move his leg. I'm praying for this dude's leg. You know? And I can feel movement. I can feel God's moving on the leg. And I want the leg to straighten. I'm like, straighten in the name of Jesus. You know? And I hear the Holy Spirit go, if I don't straighten it, but I make it functional, is that okay? And I was kind of like, and then I look up at the guy and I go, what can't you do? And he says to me, I can't climb stairs, and I walk with a limp. I'm like, all right, we can go for that. So pray for the guy. Um, my daughter's got the video of it, and the guy's walking without a limp. And I have him walking up and down stairs and walking all around the stage. Come on, heaven moves, Christian. God's authority and power moves. It's just a demonstration of the flowing of, the, of heaven. I told my, my daughter, so I, he, the guy went and sat down, and Mariah, my daughter's standing right here, and I said to her, I go, I go again, because I knew the kind of guy this guy was. He had never seen anything like that. He was kind of new to Jesus kind of thing. I said, I guarantee you that guy is staring at me right now. And uh, Mariah, Mariah looks over my shoulder, and she goes, he's staring at you right now. And I looked over at him, and the guy's just staring at me like, <laughs> heaven moves. It's not me. It's the anointing. It's the power within the believer, given to the sons and daughters. What's the difference? I'm, I, you, if you develop yourself and you understand these things, these things will open to you. Come to Firestarters next week. Good Lord. You want to start seeing heaven move in your life? You want to start touching and experiencing the Holy Spirit? That's what Firestarters is all about. To sh yes, I got one. To show you what your inheritance is. And so Jesus comes, and so we're born under law. The dispensation and the rulership and the ruling power is with the church. The devil does not want the Christian to know this. The devil does not want you to understand the authority that you carry. He does not want you to do that. And he wants to discourage you, and he puts a spirit of mute over the, over the, over the church. Deaf and dumb spirit. Can't hear, can't speak. Deaf and dumb. It's crazy. When we are the ones who are clothed with power, God's government is not moving in any other way except through the church. This is the dispensation. The time of rulership that we are in is in and through the church. Fact. The dispensation will change. When Christ comes, Shiloh or Jesus will now be the center of government. The Lord will be in the earth. Happy day. 
What's that going to be like? I have no idea, but I know it's going to be pretty good. And so the dispensational rule will move from the church and will move to him. He will be the central. He will be the light. There will be no sun. Jesus will be the light. How's that work? I don't know. I have no idea. I just know it says it. So it must be cool when it happens. So do you understand? That's what I want you to understand is dispensation. I want you to understand, too, that the power of God is given to you in this time, in this generation. Through prayer, through power, through purpose. The dispensation and the ruling authority is with the church. Our problem is, is we end up asking God to do something that he has empowered us to do. He's empowered us to do it. If you read the Bible, it says, you heal the sick. You raise the dead. You cast out devils. And you cleanse lepers. He's not saying he'll do it. He says, you do it. It's a direct, emphatic imperative. It is an order. It's not even a suggestion. It's a command. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Isn't that the trick? Isn't that the key? It's okay. You don't need to know what you're doing. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. If you listen and go, listen to those who are more developed than you, and you'll listen to the patterns and the processes of the Holy Spirit, you will see God's glory. You will. Come on. I got one. Somebody's excited. So we're in a gap of time. So I want you to know, so here we have this gap of time. Gap of time has been fulfilled. Christ has come. Now we're in the period of redemption and the dispensation of the authority of the church. And there's a gap of time. We're waiting for Jesus to come. You got me? You with me? Yes. Some of you? Half of you? We're waiting for Jesus to come. But we, in our waiting, we are to do something. We've been given authority to go about our Father's business. So we're not just waiting around twiddling our thumbs, staring at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come. We're supposed to be doing something. So I'm going to read for you portions of Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to see how far I can get with this today. But I am going to hit a couple of points. And I want to show you just signs of the times a little bit. So Matthew 24, I'm going to go fast. I'm not going to explain all of it. Jesus is in the temple. He was going away with his disciples. And they pointed out the buildings of the temple. And Jesus, and, and Jesus answered them and says, Do you see all of these? I say to you that not one of these will be left upon another. Everything that you see, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, will be thrown down. And so the disciples are like, what? And so they come to Jesus and they say, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming? And what, when will be the end of the age? And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And many will, and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All of these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures or moves under pain will, at salvation will be at the end. And this gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Jesus said, but when you see the abomination that makes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let those who read understand. Then let those who are in Judea run. Let those who are on the housetop go down and get out of town. 
Let the, the, for the one, there will be one in the field. Let them not turn back and take their cloak. And alas, women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray and pray that your flight not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation, such as never been upon the earth or will ever be. And, th- and had those days not been shor- shortened, no human would, be, would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. But if anyone says to you, look, there is the Christ, um, there he is, do not believe them. For these false Christs and these false prophets will arise, will perform signs and wonders, lying signs and wonders, so as to lead many astray. And if it would be possible, even the elect. See, I've told you these things beforehand. In other words, don't be afraid. I'm telling you how this is going to go down. So if I say to you, Lord, if they say to you, Lord, is in, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, I'm not going to be hiding in a room. You know, I'm not going to be out in the field. When I come, the, the, the sky is going to flash. You're going to know when I'm coming. Don't, you're going to see me come. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon to be blood, stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, and those of the tribes of the earth will mourn. In other words, those who don't know Jesus, they're not gonna, it's not a happy day for them. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven until the other. Okay, so there's a lot that I want to say on this. There's a lot that I want to say on this. There's a lot that I want to say on this. There is a lot that I want to say on this. So I'm going to do my best to try to keep it as simple as I can. I'm, I'm, I'm coaching myself here. Keep it simple, Kevin. Keep it simple. I, was, I want to say, there's a lot I want to say. So Jesus is talking apocalyptic. He's saying, look, man, see the temple? It's going to be torn down. See the city? Not one stone will be laid upon the other. It's, he's talking apocalyptic. And so they're like, wait a second. When, when are you coming? You're coming again. And when will you restore everything? You're talking about everything being destroyed. When will you restore everything? They asked when, and they asked for a sign. So they asked him two questions. When, and then they say, what will be the sign of your coming? And so Jesus told him, look, the when, you don't get to know. But I will tell you the signs and the preceding events leading to my coming. But the when, you don't get to know. And so that's what happened. But I will show you how it's going to go down. So I'm going to break it down a little bit. And there's, a, there's one portion I want to try to hammer if I can. And it says, let no one deceive you. It's the first thing he says. Jesus says, let nobody tell you anything different. This is how it's going to happen. There's a lots of different philosophies and a lots, of, lots of different perspectives on the coming of Jesus and when he's coming and this and that. And I've been, in, I've been in one camp for a long time, and I spent years of my life studying this, coming to the conclusion that that's not necessarily the right perspective. That is not what the Scripture teaches. Common thread is Jesus is coming at any minute of any hour of any day. The Bible does not teach that. It does not. It just doesn't. You know, you might have a couple of proof texts. I don't have time to debate it with you, but it doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. He's coming. Know this for sure. But he's not coming today. You might die and go meet him today, but he's not coming today. So how do you know this? I spent years of my life studying this, so I don't want to get into that, but I do want to tell you this. Let no one deceive you. It's going to go down like this. So here's the common thing. So pre-tribulation rapture. So I've got some people out there, and you've been like, I've studied pre-tribulation rapture, Pastor. So this is the common thread. If you don't know what pre-tribulation rapture is, it's okay. Just take a nap for five minutes and come back and come back when, 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 I'm, done, when I'm off this. Pre-tribulation rapture says that Jesus can come at any minute of any hour of any day. 
that would be great. That came about a guy named Schofield in the early eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote a Bible called the Schofield Study Bible. Some of you have heard about it. This was his point of view. And the American church just wrapped their arms around it. There's not going to be any trouble. Jesus is just going to whisk us away on, on, on clouds of glory. You know, all safety and comfort. Well, that sounds like America. That sounds like fast food. That sounds like Burger King. Have it my way and have it now. Let's do it. Let's do this. And so that Schofield perspective became the dominant view, particularly of the American church, for the last 100-plus years. The problem is, is there's incongruencies with that view with the Scripture. One of the incongruencies is, is that they'll say, when Matthew 24 lays this narrative out, right, and it tells you exactly how it's going to go down, the only way around it, if a pre-tribber can say, is that Matthew 24 was written to the Jews. That's how they get around that whole chapter. Matthew 24 wasn't written to the Gentiles. Matthew 24 was written to the Jews. Well, there's a major problem with that. You can't do that and have sound doctrine. There's something called hermeneutical laws. And when you study, her, when you study the Bible, you have to follow the grid of the hermeneutical law. And part of the hermeneutical law is usage, context, logic. And one of the laws of usage is what you begin with is what you must end with. So if I say Matthew 24 is written to the Jews, well, then the question obviously becomes, well, then who is Matthew 28 written to? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because if I can get to pick and choose who, what's written to who, then it becomes, it becomes very confusing. You can't do that. That's how, that's how uh, like heresy is created, is picking and choosing what verses apply to you. Right? Don't commit adultery. Well, that's written to the Jews, man. That ain't written to me. You know? That's not really, you, don't, you can't do that. And so that, so that principle of, of taking Matthew 24 and saying it doesn't apply to the church violates hermeneutical law. Therefore, it, can't, it, can't, it doesn't maintain the structure. I had a pastor sit me down because he, he didn't understand all this. And I'm trying to show him what I knew and what I was learning. He brings in three guys, and they're all like, they're all drilled in pre-trib. They sit me at a table, and we have like a two-hour debate, and I'm showing them things the whole time. Not one of them could answer the questions that I gave them. They ask, they tell me, I throw it back at them. They tell me, I throw it back at them. I ask them, they don't have anything. They all get up from the table and they go, you're unteachable, Kevin. And they walk out of the room. And I'm like, really? Your answer to me is I'm unteachable because you can't answer the questions that I ask you? Namely this one? If you say that Matthew 24 is written to the Jews, then who is Matthew 28 written to? And then I would say, isn't that a violation of the hermeneutical structure? And they would look at me and go, well, they didn't have an answer. It's, it's an issue of convenience, Christian. This was built into the American church as an issue of convenience. And so you say, well, why is it still taught? Because books and seminars and movies and all kinds of resources have been poured into this point of view. And to say that this view is wrong, well, that would make you look bad. I had a guy give me a book. This whole thing started with me, and I'm just going to share this with you, and then I'm going to move into it. guy hands me a book. I was drilled in pre-trib rapture. Drilled. Drilled. I had all the answers. I could answer all the questions. I still can. I'm not prepared to do so today, but give me a week and I can re refresh myself and I'll be ready to go. Right? Guy hands me a book, hand, gives me this book, and I'm like joking with him. I'm like, oh, come on, man. This guy was always into controversy. And he hands me this book and, he, and I open it up and the first thing says, a fool answers the matter before it's heard. And I was like, okay, I guess I better read this book. And so this was what one of the books that, that was one of the books that kind of got me started down the journey is that these, these scriptures are not congruent. 
And if they're not congruent, they must be line upon line, precept upon precept. They must be in order. There must be a trajectory. Things must line up or it's not doctrine. If salvation is true, then the scriptures on salvation will line up and they will form a congruent plane of thought. If the scriptures on prosperity are true, then they will line up and in God's blessing, they will form a consistent train of thought. This is how doctrine is made. It's the consistency of thought. All of, all of doctrine is formed this way. But yet on this particular topic, there was no consistency of thought. You had to tell a story around the verse rather than letting the text just speak and taking another text and letting those two texts speak. Another story, another day. So Jesus is telling them, listen, don't be deceived. It's going to go down like this. This is how it's going to go. He says the first thing he says is there's going to be false Christ. There's going to be all these guys running around telling everybody that they're Jesus or that they're some kind of a Messiah. So I did a little research on this. I had to refresh myself. And in the last 150 years, there have been 50 people internationally that have claimed to be the Savior of the world. 50. What is that, like one every three years? You know, is that, did I get that right? I don't do math on weekends, but I think so. So every three years, we got a Messiah coming on the stage. So we have this going on. Then we also have, we have false Christs that lead to other Christs. Wars and rumors of wars. Uh, this is what I'm going to talk about, because this is going to relate to what's going on. Jesus says, watch this. This must take place. Well, why would he say that? There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. These things must take place. And he says it will be ethnos against ethnos, which means people group against people group. What it, what it really is, is it's a kingdom against a kingdom. Ethnic against ethnic, kingdom against kingdom. So he gives you both layers of that. So there's going to be famines, there's going to be earthquakes, these are birth pains of the coming age. He says they're going to deliver you up and they are going to want to kill you. Kill you. Why? True Christians are the only threat to the globalist agenda. <gasps> there's a globalist agenda? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I don't know anything about the globalist agenda. We need to get out more. <laughs> True Christians are the only ones that will say a one-world currency is not of God. They're the only ones that will say an LGBTQ uh, agenda is not of God. Yeah. They're the only ones who will say it. At least we should be saying it, but we don't. Therefore, we become a threat. The only vocal opposition that, that opposes this system. One Christian is martyred every five minutes in this world. Today. Right now, Christian being martyred for their faith, on average, one every five minutes. 160,000, I think it was in, um, I can't remember where it was. It's like in um, one of the Soviet bloc countries, one of the ones with the stan on the end. I don't know which one. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, I don't know. You know, Tarzanistan, I, I don't know. which One of the stan countries. 160,000 Christians were just displaced, and, mo and a lot of them were murdered. Did you hear anything about that? They were Christians. Right? Why don't we hear anything about that? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. If it was 160,000 Muslims, you wouldn't, you'd be hearing about it every single day. Christians are hated and despised, true Christians, for their faith, and they're being martyred and killed today. America is an insular society. We're still protected, mostly. Mostly. And our, but but the, the hatred and the despising comes because we, we are to be the ones who are enlightened 
We're to be the ones who are supposed to understand. <laughs> we're to be the ones who are supposed to understand what's going on. Hmm? It's true. They're going to kill you and you will be hated. Many will fall away. What does that mean? Jesus will sift the wheat before he comes. All the little temperamental, you know, glam churches and all this other stuff. Great. Hallelujah. I'm all in. Let's glam it up. Let's put some production value here. Let's, let's get some excitement going. But at the same time, can we be true believers? Can we have true faith? People will fall away. What, what this is going to be is that churches will renounce their faith and they'll follow the culture. They'll fall away. You say that's impossible. Is it? It was a mega church a few years ago and they did an assessment. If I named it, some of you would know this church. They did an assessment of their church to find out if they had actually make, made disciples in 30 years. And they did this big assessment. It's a seeker church, seeker sensitive. You know what seeker sensitive is? It means nobody ever uses the word sin. The word sin is never spoken in the church. I tell people, if three months you go to a church and they don't use the word sin, it's time to go. I'm not saying every message is sin, 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 but it should come up, right? Holy Spirit moves on sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's how the Holy Spirit ministers to the unbeliever. The Spirit of God convicts the world, that is the unbeliever, brings them to Jesus when they understand sin, righteousness, and judgments. Therefore, sin, righteousness, and I'm going to talk about judgment, it has to be proclaimed. If you go to a church for three months in the United States, it would be easy to do. You won't, you won't hear those topics at all. They won't say sin. They won't say righteousness. They won't say judgment. Jesus is your buddy. He's your cheerleader. Jesus over there got pom-poms. Woo! Woo! He's cheering you on. He is a cheerleader. He is for you. He's not against you. But he's also a king. He's also a lord. And he's also your leader. And we are commanded to follow him. They will fall away because it's a cultural compromise. Good God. I don't even want to touch COVID, but I feel like I want to, but I'm not going to. Don't encourage me. The churches were at a, the weakest moment I have ever seen in my life was over COVID. Total and complete capitulation of the church. Bowing down whatever the government said. Oh, oh. Somebody's like, this is my last day here at this church. Well, I'm sorry. I, I love you. I bless you. I speak the truth in love. I speak the truth in love. We have a constitutional right of assembly. It's in the First Amendment. It's not in the Second Amendment. It's not in the Third Amendment. First Amendment of this country guarantees the right of assembly to the churches. Guarantees. The churches have met throughout history in this country. There was a black plague, and they met. Do your history. There was an epidemic, the, the influenza virus huh, of 1918, and the churches met. They met. Not this time. Oh, you know what I felt like it was? I told my wife. I said, this is a test of the leadership of the churches. This is a test. And all, and everybody just bowed right down. Mega church pastors wouldn't say anything. Those with the most influences were the most silent. They said nothing. Nothing. And they allowed the government to take from us. And they allowed the government to steal from us. And you know what the church did? 
lowered itself to a lower voice. They made a covenant with a lesser voice. They capitulated to the voice of the, of the, of the culture. Watch what happens. There's a subjugation that happens. To what you agree with becomes your master. The church made an agreement and an alliance with the culture. Not me. I didn't tell anybody to come. I wasn't like, hey, y'all need to come. But I stood here the whole time, and I told I asked the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? I said, do you want me to? And he's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I'm like, and I had a friend of mine tell me, Pastor, you should preach from your living room. I'm like, God didn't call me to my living room. Amen. Jesus didn't call me to the basement. Amen. He didn't call me to the living room. He told me to stand before the people and speak his word. Nobody needs to come. I didn't say, hey, everybody, come. But I'm not preaching from my basement. I'm not preaching from my living room in my socks. I had a friend of mine send me a picture with his feet up with his socks on. And he says, thank you, church, for doing the brave thing. His name's Joe. I'll call you out, Joe. Good God, I'm on fire today, man. I told you don't get me over that line. I told him, I said, it's brave to lay on the couch with your feet up on a Sunday morning? I said, that's brave? How is that brave? It's not brave. <laughs> Thank God. I'm going to shout out Miami-Dade County. Thank God. Miami-Dade County. Hallelujah. Miami-Dade. You've been knocking it out of the park. They kicked the agenda out of the school. They just did that. Hallelujah. Praise God. Miami-Dade. You want your kids sexualized by a school board? Anybody here, anybody in your right mind want them teaching you any? Why do you need to teach my kid anything about sex? Aren't you supposed to teach them math? I don't need you to counsel my kids on their gender. Just saying. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Miami-Dade said the churches have a right to be open. Broward County didn't do that. But the 305 said, you can be open. Fuego, Miami. Just saying. This has nothing to do with my notes. You're like, I don't agree with you. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not asking you to agree with me. It's a personal choice. I understand that. But I will be found faithful. If my father's eyes looked on this pulpit, he's going to see me standing here. He's not going to be wondering where I'm at. He's going to see me standing the post that he has assigned me to. And I will not run. I will not. You say, well, <laughs> people are going to fall away. Do you know why? Because the cultural pressure will become great. You think COVID was cultural pressure? This is a time that there will never be. There will be such cultural pressure to bow to those voices, to bow to those agendas. It's only going to escalate, and many will fall away. And they'll say, well, Jesus isn't worth it. Are you know? Jesus is worth it all, as far as I'm concerned. There will be a falling away. He's going to sip the wheat. He's going to sip the wheat, divide the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. There's sheep and goats in his house. He's going to find who the true believers are. Yeah, though they shrink back, my, my soul has no pleasure. And we've got to develop an inner fortitude, Christian, if we are to go through last days, if last days are upon our generation, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But if they are, then we need to get a little bit stronger. We need to be lions and not marshmallows. 
We need to be a little fervent in our faith, a little strong, a little certain, certain. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. I don't know what y'all going to do. That's what Joshua said. What y'all going to do is up to you. But as for me, I will stand and I will serve God, not a culture. I will serve a king. And that's the heart that we have to develop. We don't even have to develop. We have to instill that into our children. We have to instill that into our children. God, help us. Come on. (laughs) Somebody help me. False prophets will arise. Now, let me give you this one. I'm going to get, and I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. False prophets are going to arise. Now, a false prophet is not someone that says, I see God's going to give you a job of $100,000 a year in the next six months, and it doesn't come to pass. Oh, you're a false prophet. That's not a false prophet. A false prophet is the one who misrepresents the character and the nature of God. That's a false prophet. So when we have people saying, no one needs to repent, there is no hell, God loves everyone, everyone's saved, those are false prophets and those are false narratives. They are misrepresenting the character and the nature of God. They do not speak for me, the Lord would say. Those are false speakers of my name. They do not speak for me. Huh? Does that clarify it for some of you? False prophet is somebody who misrepresents the character and the nature of God. Lawlessness will abound. Can we get a witness here? Have you seen Seattle? Have you seen San Francisco? Lawlessness is abounding. Companies are fleeing because nobody will arrest a shoplifter. I'm supposed to teach, but now I'm preaching. I guess it just kind of moved me over to the other side. I wasn't this passionate when I was writing it. I was just writing it. Now all of a sudden it's coming alive. Lawlessness everywhere. Uh, they let people that commit violent crimes in New York right out the door. They don't even keep them. And they do that, and they know it, and they do another one in 24 hours, and then they're out the door again. Lawlessness is abounding. It's abounding. In your lifetime, did you ever think America would become a lawless society? Look at California, the whole state. I don't know if the earth tilted left and everything loose fell into California. I don't know what's going on there, man. They've lost their mind. They have lost their mind. Lawlessness. And it says that the love of many will grow cold because of lawlessness. What it means is people will draw into themselves. They will draw into themselves. It'll be a hopelessness. It'll be a despair. It'll be a me first. It'll be the opposite of what God wants. Lawlessness will abound. This stuff's happening now. This didn't happen in 1950. This wasn't happening in 1920. I mean, we had criminals, but they would arrest them. Now we have criminals and they don't arrest them. It's crazy. And it says the ones who move forward under pain. It says the ones who endure to the end. It uses the word hypomeno. Y'all should know what that means, moving in pain. The ones who move in pain, salvation is waiting for you. The ones who are capable of moving under such times. So what does he expect us to do under such times? He expects us to move forward. Doing what? He says it in the next verse. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the king's domain. God is greater than any circumstance. Not the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. And there is a difference. The gospel is is simply good news. The gospel of the kingdom is good news. Jesus reigns. Good news. Jesus is greater than this economy. Good news. Jesus is greater than sickness. 
good news. Jesus is greater than your, than your circumstances. That is the dominion of God. That's what we want. We don't just preach the gospel. We preach the gospel of dominion. The dominance, the inbreaking power of God into every sphere of life. Another story, another day. Don't have time for that. And then he says, the abomination of death makes desolation. This is the Antichrist. Then he says this one, the days of Noah. This is, this is fascinating. It's a little further down. I didn't read it. But he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what in the world was going on in the days of Noah? Yeah, they were marrying and getting in marriage, right? Well, we've been doing that for a while. But what was happening is there was genetic manipulation. <gasps> you had the Nephilim, and you had the Raphaim, and you had demonic spirits genetically manipulating human beings. The intercourse, encounter, if you read Genesis, one of the crazy, I'm not even want to open up the can of worms because everybody's going to have 50,000 questions on that, which is fine, but I can't answer them. But it's the days of Noah. The summation of the days of Noah is genetic manipulation. I just watched a TED talk, not even maybe five months ago, and the guy says, our goal is to completely crack or to hack the DNA code of man. Our vaccines are becoming RNA vaccines. This is what makes them dangerous. They're not vaccines, they're RNA vaccines. They penetrate into the, into, if, you're, if Jesus made my RNA closed, and if Jesus made my DNA a closed system, then I don't want any man hacking my RNA. And I don't want any man hacking my DNA. This is just me. There's a reason why the DNA system is closed. And there's a reason why the RNA system is closed. Science doesn't see it that way because they don't believe we're created. They believe we're evolved. We've evolved. Therefore, the, the, the mindset is we're trying to help man with his next stage of evolution. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to help us evolve. No, thank you. Thank you first, bro. <laughs> I'm going to sit back, eat some chips, and watch you for 10 years. See if you grow another head out of your neck, and then maybe. Just maybe. I, I know I'm stepping on toes this morning, and I don't mean to. I know I'm stepping on people's perspectives, and there are varying perspectives. I understand that. I'm trying to give you what the Bible says. And one of the things the Bible tells us is awaken sleeper. Awaken sleeper. The people who should be the most woke aren't the, isn't the left. It should be the Christian. Wake up. We are the force of power in the earth, Christian. We are the force of power. Another story, another day. <laughs> false portrayals of Jesus, no need to repent, no judgment. Jesus is your cheerleader, creating God in your image, which is another version of taking the Lord's name in vain. When people teach Christ in an empty manner, that's what it means to carry the Lord's name in vain. When the Bible is talking about carrying the Lord's name in vain, it's not saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. That's, yeah, okay, that's repetitive and that might even... You know, you might need some classes on that or something. But what, what it's meaning is that you carry the Lord's name and you do nothing with his name. Or you carry the Lord's name and you represent him in an empty manner. That's what it means. Vanity is emptiness. We carry the Lord's name in emptiness. This is something that we should all consider. We should not carry the Lord's name in emptiness. We carry his name. We should do something with his name. We carry his presence. We should do something with his presence. We carry his power. We should do something with his power. 
But what it's talking about, what it's also talking about, is people who represent Jesus or represent the Lord in an empty way. He's just empty. No value, no purpose, another story. But this is really where I want to land, and I got 20 minutes, and I'm going to do it. By the love of God, Holy Spirit. Wars and rumors of wars. How many knows there's wars and there's some rumors of wars going on right now? We have two conflicts in the earth. One of them is central to the scripture. And so there's a war, and then there's a rumor that the war could escalate. So the war and the rumor of an even bigger war could happen. And so the, what we want, I want to look at is I want to look at Israel and just try to give you some perspective as what's going on here. And she give you some understanding so that you can understand what's going on and why. What's happening, first of all, I don't want to diminish anything that's happening there. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of death, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of loss. And that, no matter which, which way you put it, it can't be understated. And what's happening there is very dark, very evil. There's pain on both sides. There's people caught in the middle, right? And, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not a good thing. And we pray for, we pray for um, Israel. When I was in Italy, they asked me to pray for Israel. And I said, before I pray for Israel, you know what I did? It's crazy. I can't have time to tell you all these stories, but I'll tell you this one. They asked me to come up, and you know, the, the, well, the guy who's overseeing the churches, he asked me, he said, would you pray for Israel? I said, yeah, I'll pray for Israel. And I told the group, I said, but before I pray for Israel, I want to repent for America. And I told them, my government gave Iran $6 billion. And two weeks later, Hamas invaded Israel with America's money that was given to Iran. Hamas is backed by Iran, in case you don't know that. And your government, your president, my president, my government, gave Iran $6 billion with a B. And I asked the Italians, I said, how many of you knew that? Not one. How many Americans do that? Does anybody here in the room do that? Right? $6 billion. So that, gov that war is being funded with U.S. dollars. And so, so I said, before we even pray for the peace of Israel, I need to repent for the arrogance and the insolence and the disobedience of my own country. So I prayed, and we repented. And I asked God to lift the curse and the blood and the stain off of the stupid leaders who care nothing about those people, who incite violence to their own gain. Nuts. This battle in this land is ethnic. It's people against people. We need to pray for our America, man. Let me challenge some of you. Some of you are intercessors. I've been to Europe two times in the last three months. There are, there's not much going on there, but there are radicals who are on their face with fire, believing God to save Europe. And I mean, it is, I meet these guys and I'm like, what? I mean, they're believing God to do a movement. Seriously, these guys aren't up there. You know, they're praying deep prayers, man. God save Europe. God save Italy. God save Ireland. God save. I met this one guy. He's got a beep. He's got, I don't know if he's got a beeper, but he's got some kind of an alarm and everything that goes off on the hour. And he's up there and he's talking to a small group of people. The alarm goes off and he drops down to his knees when that alarm went off and started interceding for Europe. He prays every day on the hour for Europe. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Watch what happens in the next 10 years. Europe's going to light up. You're going to see it. It's going to go. Why? 
Because someone's willing to pray the price. Huh? Can we pray for our nation? Can we pray that God would do a work in our land? That God would revive it? And God would awaken it? And God would move the arrogance and the insolence that rules our government? Righteousness exalts a people, but sin is a reproach to every land. That sin stains this land. That arrogance, that stupidity, that greed, that corruption stains this land. Stains it. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I don't really care. That is wrong. And all of the things that have been going on for the last four years is, is absolute and absolute vile corruption. Vile corruption. And none of it lines up with the kingdom of your father. None of it. None of it. None of it. Another story, <laughs> another day. Well, I love you. <laughs> Why is the Israel always the focus in the Bible? Because the prophetic timetable of the last times always relates to Israel. Israel's the epicenter. Jesus' eyes aren't on Washington, not on Moscow, not on Beijing. Jesus' eyes are on Jerusalem. It's the city of the king, he said. Jerusalem, the city of the king. His eyes are there. Does that mean the Jewish people are perfect? Not by far, no. They're completely imperfect. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. They do all kinds of corrupt and wrong things. They're not perfect people, but God has a prophetic promise to that land, and he will keep it. He is faithful even if we are faithless. They can be completely faithless, but God will keep the faithfulness of his promise that he made them. They don't want him, but he chooses to honor the covenant that he made, the, the faithful promises that he made. These things are necessary, Jesus says. These wars and war, these conflicts are necessary. And then he says, don't be afraid when you see these conflicts because they're necessary. Why are they necessary? And why is Israel important, right? It is necessary. So here's the deal. So where am I, where am I going with this? All right. Well, here's another question. Let me answer this, right? This debate is over land. There's really no debate if you're a believer because it's one of the only places that God actually gave people land. He gave Israel the land. He gave them the land. Throw, hey, Alex, you have that map? Throw that map up there. Do you know how much land? Here, here's, here's what Israel is right now, this little blue box. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter 15, God said, from this river to this river, I give you. This is all of their land, promised by God. In the Six-Day War, they, cut, they took a huge swath of territory. They were actually all the way down here in the Sinai principle, Peninsula, and Israel had captured all of this land. God, they were reclaiming their land when they came back into the land. 1948, they became a nation. 1967, they were attacked, and they blasted them all back, and they captured huge swaths of territory. United Nations comes in and says, hey, you need to give the land back. The UN made them give the land back, and now they isolate them in this little corner. But if you want to understand Scripture, it doesn't govern. Listen, the government doesn't have the right to rule when Jesus is in charge. And if you're aware of that, the UN doesn't have a right to rule when Jesus is in charge. And so the land was given to them from one river to another. This is their land, biblically. So there's really not a debate over whose land it is. It's their land. However, these conflicts will force a timeline. This conflict in Israel, you can take it down. These conflicts in Israel are going to force something to happen. They're going to force something to happen in Israel. So all of these wars will force an inevitability. 
There has to be a temple in Jerusalem. There has to be. A temple must be built in Israel, in Jerusalem. Why? Because the prophetic timetable requires the Antichrist to stand in the holy place. And if the Antichrist isn't standing in the holy place, which initiates the coming of the Lord, then there is no prophetic fulfillment. Here's, a, here's 2 Thessalonians. This, this is written to a Gentile church. This is not written to Jews at all. And these people, so what's going on in Thessalonica is that they're really freaked out because world events were really moving around. And so the people are freaking out. They're like, have we missed the rapture? Has the Lord come? What's going on? And so Paul says, I challenge you to not be so shaken in or troubled in spirit, in word, or in letter, either from us or, or through anyone else, as though the day of Christ had already come. So they're freaking out, thinking they missed something, right? Jesus has come. Everything's going on, and, you know, what's happening here? We don't know what's going on. And what does Paul say? He, he, he echoes the same thing Jesus said. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, will not come unless there's a falling of the way first. And then the second thing he says is that the Antichrist must be revealed. That's what he says. Number one, people are going to fall away. The cultural pressure is going to come on the church to separate the wheat from the chaff, the believers from the pretenders, right? And the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes himself and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he sits in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. It's exactly the same thing. The abomination that makes desolation standing in the holy place. It's the same, same exact thing. So the time of the end, Paul's telling these, these Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, you have to, there's going to be a falling away, and you're going to see an antichrist who's going to stand in a temple. So there has to be a temple in Jerusalem. My daughter used to ask me all these things all the time. She'd ask me things. i said, say, Mariah, these are just birth pains and, you know, tremors of the birth coming, the birthing of the coming kingdom. It's really what it is. Waves, ladies. You should know. If you've had children, you should know all about that. That wave, wave, right? So these are just birth pains. But I would tell my daughter, especially who always asks me these questions, I would tell her, when you see the temple, start paying attention. When you start hearing anything negotiating around a temple going up in Jerusalem, I said, that's when you really need to pay attention. I got it. I got it. All right. I got it. I got this. So there's a war. So what's happening is these wars will eventually force a peace accord. Bible predicts the man of peace will come. He's going to come from the old Roman Empire, the two legs of the Roman Empire, the East and the West. Antichrist, the, you, the, the, the old Roman Empire will reform. Europe's already reformed. Turkey's already on the scene, whole scene there. Eastern and Western Euro, um, European um, uh, Roman Empire will form. From the European Empire, will, or from the uh, Roman Empire, will come a world leader. Bible calls himself a man of peace, but he's actually a man of destruction. He's going to come to Israel, and he's going to offer them a peace accord. What's the peace accord going to look like? Well, it's probably going to look something like this, right? So just to give you a little geopolitical background here, uh, Hamas, is, there's two different sects of, of Islam. There's Shia and there's Sunni. The, the Shia don't value Jerusalem anywhere near as much as the Sunnis do. So it's safe to say that some of the clerics that are Shia, not all of them, but they believe that Jerusalem is, doesn't necessarily have to be Muslim. They don't believe that. Some do, some don't. 
Well, so what's probably going to happen, this is plausible. I'm not predicting this. This is just a plausible scenario. You can see it in real time. What will happen is this conflict with Hamas, which Hamas is Shia, Iran is Shia, is that's going to happen is this conflict's going to keep going. And this man of peace is going to come along and go, hey, you Jews want a temple, which the secular Jews do not want a temple. The Hasidims, the Hasidics want a temple. The, ha the Hasidic Jews are 23% of the population of Israel. 10, 15, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, they were 3% of the population. They said, we will birth our way into power. And so in, in less than 20 years, they've gained 20%. They predict by 2050, there'll be 60% of the population of Israel, the, Jew, the, the, the really devout religious Jews. And so what's going to happen is there'll be cultural pressure within Israel, right? They're going to want that temple because the Hasidics want that temple. Hamas is going to want Gaza. Some dude's going to come cruising up on the scene and say, I tell you what, we'll give you Gaza. You give, us the, you give, them, the, um, you give them the temple. And that peace deal will look something like that. Somebody will get something in exchange. And so what will happen, most likely, Israel will build that temple. Well, they're going to build the temple, but they're going to build the temple. And once they build the temple, Israel will start sacrificing. It'll start sacrificing. How do we know this? Because the Bible says that the Antichrist puts an end to the sacrifice. Well, you can't put an end to the sacrifice unless there is a beginning to the sacrifice. Jews will build the temple. You'll probably see a Passover. They may not get more than one. But there will be a Passover on the Temple Mount. They will be sacrificing. And so what will happen is, is most likely Israel will get the temple. They'll start sacrificing, calling on God, whatever it is. And then the, 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 the Muslims are going to freak out. The Sunnis and the Shia are going to freak out. This covenant's going to get broken. And then all of the nations, Ezekiel 38, will come against Jerusalem. All of the nations. Wasn't it interesting? Let's just take a look. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to relate to this. Well, what are the nations that come against Jerusalem? Well, the Bible tells us. He says, Magog... Rosh, uh, Meshach, Tubal, Cush, uh, Put, Gomer, and Beth Togomorrah. Well, who are these people? Well, this is all fact. There's one that they don't know. It's kind of there. But Magog, right? Magog is um, Uzbekistan, it's this region of Kazakhstan, and it's all, every one of these countries is Islamic. Every one of them. When Ezekiel 38 says these nations will come against Jerusalem, they're all Islamic countries. All of them. All of them. Rosh, remote part. They don't know where Rosh comes from. Meshach and Tubal is Turkey. Persia is Iran. Cush is Ethiopia. Uh, Put uh, is Libya. Gomer is another portion of, of uh, Turkey. And then uh, uh, Beth Togomara is, again, Turkey. So Turkey's there, and Persia's there. But all of the, all of the, when the Bible says that the armies move against Jerusalem, which Luke tells us that, and then... Um, uh, Ezekiel 38 tells us that the armies move against Jerusalem. Every one of these armies is Muslim. They're all Muslim. So what's going to happen? They're going to build a temple. They're going to offer up on the temple. And the Muslims are going to start tripping. And then they're all going to unite. And they're going to move against Jerusalem. And that's what's going to happen. And that's the, that's the scenario um, of the last days. Does this make sense to you guys? I'm completely out of time. And I told you I was going to make a mess of this. So I hope I'm not. But this is what's going to happen. So what does it mean? It means that this conflict is just one of many more conflicts that you will see in your lifetime. You're going to see there's not going to be peace in Israel until Jesus comes. The Bible actually says no peace until Shiloh comes. And so, but, so this is what's going to happen. These conflicts are going to keep going, and they're going to go back and forth. This one will end. Is it going to escalate? I don't know. It could escalate, but most likely it's going to end. You know, and why? Because the formation hasn't happened for the Antichrist to come. A man of sin will be revealed. Who, how will we know who the man of sin is? The man of sin is the guy who signs the peace deal. 
The guy who signs the peace deal to build the temple, that's the Antichrist. But you won't recognize him at the Antichrist because he's probably going to look like Brad Pitt. Hey. hey. He's going to have all the answers. He's going to be dressed really smooth. He's not going to look like an Antichrist at all. And the Bible says that the whole world will fall under the sway of his delusion. The whole world. A delusion to believe a lie. They're going to be seduced by this guy. Crazy. He, but the guy who signs that peace deal, he's the guy. And you know what's going to happen? The Christians are going to be going, that's the guy. Dude, that's him. That's the Antichrist. And, they're going to, and the world's going to go, that guy? Come on. He's too good looking, man. He was on the cover of GQ with his shirt off last month. That can't be the Antichrist. Have you seen his tattoos? Come on. He's got an Instagram profile of 3 million people. Would an Instagram, would a Danny Christ have an Instagram profile of 3 million people? I don't think so. But the Christians are the ones who are going to identify him. So what do we do in the meantime before we take communion? <laughs> I got it, Shelly. I got three minutes. I got three minutes. Plenty of time. Plenty of time. So what do you do in the meantime? Don't be afraid. That's what he said. Wars and rumors of war. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus has it. He's got it. He got, he's got it. it. It doesn't matter what, the, what man threatens. So we talk about the sovereignty of God. And in God's sovereignty, he delegates authority. He's given us the majority of, of power has been given to us. There's two or three things that he holds for himself. One is righteousness. The other is the way the end scenario is going to happen. The fate of this creation is under his sovereignty. In other words, nobody gets to vote on that. He determines it. He says, this is the way it's going to go down, and if they want to take it another way, Jesus is going to go, nope, it's not going that way. Nope, it's not going that way. He'll allow the timeline to follow the, the preordained path. He's sovereign over this. He's sovereign. You don't have to worry about this. He's got this. He's got it. So there'll be wars. There'll be more conflicts. There'll be ups. There'll be down. There'll be all kinds of stuff that's going to happen. Yeah? So... But the one thing that, that does appear, and I just want to share this, and then I'll close, is at the end of this chapter, which I didn't read it because it's very long, at the end of this chapter, Jesus says, blessed is the servant whom the master, when he comes, finds faithful. That's what he says after all this. He says, blessed will you be when I come, when I find you doing what I asked you to do. Fulfilling your purpose, loving me, honoring me, standing for me, not denying me. Blessed will you be. Don't you want to be that person? Yes. I want to be that one, right? So what? Serve, live for Jesus. Serve, serve his purposes in everything you do. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We shouldn't freak out. We shouldn't freak out. You know, Christians buying, you know, prepping properties and going to go up and be a prepper. I'm like, what? It's not in the Bible, right? I'm not, I'm not going to go and put 50,000 gallons of gas. Or I have a friend, he's got like 500 gallons of gas buried in a yard. And he built his house like a fortress, like a rotunda with shooting lanes, right? No, he's serious. He's got like a sniper thing on the top and everything. I mean, it's really cool, you know? But I'm like, dude, if I'm like a marauder and I know you got gas... And I know there's like four of you in the house. I'm going to come with like 20 guys. And I don't care how well insulated it is. If we want that, we're going to get it. You know? So anyway, another story. 
We're called to press in, not pull back. Amen? Amen. So we're going to take communion. Uh, is Danny here? Somebody play piano? I'd play if I could. <laughs> so we're going to take communion. So uh, as Danny plays, I want you guys to just come up and go around, grab the uh, communion element, bring it back to the seat with you, and we'll take it together. what it's all about it's all about Jesus and what he did for us and he makes us family you know you're no longer alone and you need to know that in a lonely world you're no longer alone it's one of the reasons God established the church was that together we could affect change together we could bring transformation but also at the same time that we wouldn't be alone it's not good that man's alone. It's not good that any of us are alone. You have friends, you have family, you have brothers and sisters here. You're not alone. You're not an outsider, you're an insider. You're wanted. You're wanted. When I was in Ireland, I talked to one of the women there, and there's a big prophetic movement in Ireland. I was shocked at how many prophetic people I ran into. And this woman said to me, I said, what's your discernment of Ireland? And she said, Ireland is unwanted. I said, no one wants Ireland. I said, the UK doesn't want Ireland. Our leaders don't want Ireland. She said, our earls and our, um, our lords abandoned us centuries ago. And she said, Ireland is lost and unwanted. And I was like, wow, happy day. Because Jesus wants the unwanted. Yeah? And so we did this prayer there, and it was, it was insane, man. I felt like the Lord was like, look, you guys, we're going to pray. And we're going to offer Ireland to Jesus. Not just that way, but we're going to, because she was saying, it's like being abandoned by a husband or being abandoned by a father. She said, we have no leader. And so we, all, we had all the people praying. It was crazy cool. I feel it now. And we started praying and offering the country to the Lord and asking the Lord to be the father of that nation and asking the Lord to be the husband of that nation. And while we were praying, I, I didn't even catch it until later, but I kept seeing like a hand, like it was the Lord's hand, and his hand was sticking out. And there was a big green emerald on his finger, on his left finger, 
like his marrying thing. It had gold on it, and it was like the Lord was showing it off, going, look, they made me their husband. They made me their, they made me their husband. It was like Jesus was showing it off. And I didn't even catch the green emerald thing until I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's Ireland's like that green emerald thing. It was amazing. And it was like Jesus just accepted that. Like, you're going to offer me? It's like he just took it as an honor. Wow, you're going to ask me to be your father? You're going to ask me to be the husband of this land? That's what I told that lady. I said, happy day. Happy day. Nobody wants you? Hallelujah. <laughs> Jesus wants you. And that's all that matters. Let's hold it up. Say, this represents the body of Jesus that was given for me. It's no small thing. I believe it, and I receive it. Let's take it together. Let's hold up the cup. This represents the blood of Jesus. I am not born of the earth. I am not born of an earthly bloodline. I am born of a royal bloodline, the blood of a king. My blessing, my life, and all that I am flows through the blood of heaven by the blood of Jesus that was given for me. This is no small thing. I believe it and I receive it. Let's take it together. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. We'll have a prayer team available if you need prayer and then let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may the Lord give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.